views expressed on this program are those of the hosts, guests, and callers, and are not necessarily those of the station, its management, or other advertisers. You're listening to Transformation Talk Radio. Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show that's coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Many of you have noticed we have started an amazing new series It's called our Creating a Better World series. And I've had the honor and pleasure of interviewing people from all over the world doing some of the most incredible things. In this hour, we have three such people coming to the forefront. So stay tuned, fasten your seatbelt, and here we go. I'm so thrilled to have Dr. Michael Rezac joining us here today. You know, uh, for many of us, we think about what in life is ours to do. Today, this medical director of the Movement Disorder Center at Northwestern Medicine Central is joining us here today to shine a light on Parkinson's disease. It is the second most common neurodegenerative disorder after Alzheimer's. So for a little background on who Dr. Rezac is, he's someone that has been in the forefront, whether it be on scientific advisory board, whether it be in medical research associations, or simply being out there helping us understand how devastating this is. Today, it's wonderful to have him here as someone that understands neuroanatomy, someone that's bringing a powerful, powerful message to the forefront, and someone who serves as the principal investigator several trials, including the development of valid markers and risk factors to identify patients in the preclinical phase of Parkinson's disease. And joining me here today is Dr. Michael Rezac. And what I want you all to know is I'm honored and thrilled to have him here as someone that is not just intimately involved with the history of this, but somebody that's making a difference. Dr. Rezac, it's great to have you here today. Thank you. It's my pleasure, and I thank you. Um. Many folks at some level know about Parkinson's disease at some level. Um, We know it from perhaps people that have been celebrities and so forth. But generally speaking, folks are just not well educated. What is it that that the folks listening to the show, um, what should they really be mindful of today given what you're doing in the world? What should we be aware of? Um, so Parkinson's disease, I think these days, is not the same as your grandfather's Parkinson's disease. I think we have excellent symptomatic treatments. Uh, and if with the proper care and, and really micromanagement of our patients, uh, they can do well for decades. And I think one of the obstacles when we make the diagnosis uh, is that patients see themselves in a wheelchair in a couple of years. And that yeah. is absolutely not true. Hmm. It's just not true. And so um, I think that's important to know. We have, like, as I said, both pharmacologic treatments, medicines, and we have surgical treatments uh, that are extremely effective. And we're making progress in research. We're working on finding biomarkers that will definitively diagnose Parkinson's disease, maybe even before the first uh, motor symptom. 
because we know that the process begins uh, a decade or two even before the first motor symptom appears. And if we can find out who is going to get Parkinson's in the future, we can start some neuroprotective therapies which are in the pipeline uh, right now. So yeah. uh, we're very hopeful. Yeah. And yeah, and you know your work too and you, just the fact that you're here speaking with our listeners today about this really, you know, it's it really speaks volumes. You know, there is a rate of progression of this that um many folks are not aware of. So for example, where will we be uh 10 years from now in looking at this? How, how is the population uh progressing uh along these lines? Because I I, I tend to believe believe that it really is a time for a new level of awareness around this, isn't it? I think it is as well, obviously. And I think it's great that you're doing this for Parkinson's disease today. But by 2030, we think the numbers numbers will double. Uh, we have about a million, million and a half patients and uh, probably three million by 2030. Uh, lots of people, not enough actually neurologists trained in uh, movement disorders to handle all that, all of those patients. So we we have a challenge ahead of us. Is there a confusion for people between Parkinson's disease, MS, Lou Gehrig's? I think people tend to just put everything kind of together, right? Um, and I would uh, love for you to kind of make a distinction. <laughs> Um, you know, the most common uh, uh, confusion occurs, especially with a tremor, whether somebody has a central tremor or a, uh, or a Parkinson's tremor, which, and they're actually very two different uh, types of tremor. A Parkinson's tremor occurs when the limb is at rest, when it's not being used, uh, whereas an essential tremor occurs when the limb is being used. And so uh, very different, but I'm still getting many referrals from uh, neurologists even okay. who have that uh, uh, mixed up. And we actually have a technique nowadays, a tool uh, in nuclear medicine called a DAT scan, D-A-T, and it's a, a scan that actually measures the dopamine content in the part of the brain that we're interested in in Parkinson's. And it'll either tell you that there's a deficiency in dopamine or there's not. And if there is, then you're dealing with a Parkinsonism of some sort. And if it's not, you are not dealing with Parkinson's at all. It's something else. So, I mean, when there's, things are confusing diagnostically, we can... Uh, Use that tool in the in the right setting. Well, and you know, I love what you said because I think for many of us, uh, you know, there's kind of a relief that you know the average person doesn't know the difference, but you do, and this is what's really important today. You know, there are new therapies. I want to ask you this question. You know, we're seeing things develop. Um, I know, for example, in, in the breast cancer arena where people are looking at, wait a minute, am I at risk for this? And, and, and I just don't think that we make the connection when we're talking about neurological uh, diseases or illnesses that, oh, wait, there could be there could be risk factors that might point in that direction. I don't know. Am I on track? Yeah, you're 100% on track. Um, so we know certain things. Now, remember, the risk factors, a lot of them are, are correlations. They're not necessarily cause and effect. Um, for example, uh, if you have one first-degree relative or two uh, with Parkinson's, your risk goes up. Uh, not huge, but still goes up. Um if you're uh, exposed to pesticides and herbicides in the form of uh, well water, you know, it leaches into the groundwater, mm -hmm. that's a very strong, high correlation for um, a risk for getting Parkinson's disease. Uh, we, in fact, we use some of these pesticides to make animal models of Parkinson's because they they target the dopamine neurons, uh, which are the ones that are uh, degenerating in Parkinson's disease. We, uh, you know, certain uh, premotor symptoms are risk factors, like uh, certain sleep disorders. Uh, 40 to 50% of people with, a, with something called a REM sleep behavior disorder, where you act out your dreams as opposed to being quiet and enjoying them, um, 
will go on to get Parkinson's disease. So we follow those patients. It could, be, could even be a decade later. So these are signs that the process of Parkinson's begins way before the first motor symptom, and that's what we're looking at. We want a biomarker that'll tell us 10 years before someone's going to get Parkinson's disease that they're destined to get it, and then we're able to follow that along, use neuroprotective therapies that are being developed, and maybe prevent the person from ever actually manifesting the disease entirely. So that's the the thrust of the research these days, not just with us, we're doing a lot of that, but really around the country. Yeah, I mean, you just hit on, uh, and honestly, I know we only have a few minutes here, but you just hit on an entire series we're doing. Um, One of the connections you made, I think, is so important, having grown up in New York and New Jersey, especially, and being out in those fields where New Jersey is known for agriculture, of course, and standing out, I hate to even admit this to you, but standing out in a field and watching airplanes come over with this spray, right? And most of that that agricultural land is wells. They have wells there. We just have not until you're the first person that I've actually interviewed on this that actually connected those dots. You know, can we be more mindful about this? Uh, I think we have to be because I think any of these toxins that are leaching into whatever we ingest on a daily basis is eventually going to manifest itself in some disease. And certainly if we watch that carefully, we can prevent some cases of Parkinson's Mm -hmm. disease. Now there are some genetics. Uh, We've identified like 16 uh, mutations or so. It changes every day. Uh, The vast majority are recessive. And just because you have that uh, mutation doesn't mean you're going to get Parkinson's. Uh, there are a few that are dominant, which means, you know, 50% chance of, of getting it if your parent has it, uh, but it's probably less than 1%. I think we still have not uncovered all the genetics. We have a, a long way to go, but the thinking now is a genetic predisposition and then being exposed to some toxin, something in our environment that sets the neurodegenerative process uh, going. And I think we think it's a double hit kind of hypothesis that makes uh, the Parkinson's disease process begin. You know, I want to ask you this question, especially for our listeners. Um, there are, I, I believe, uh, you mentioned this before, there are symptoms that that begin to occur Right. Even before somebody says, oh, wait a minute, I I think I may have Parkinson's. Can you just walk us on a pathway of progression so we can be more mindful of what the symptoms are? Yeah, I think any time that and again, this is Parkinson's is a very slowly progressive illness, um, but it begins on one side of the body. So kind of weird if all of a sudden your left side is slower, your arm doesn't move as well. I mean, that's a a red flag. That's not supposed to happen. Um, A mild tremor, uh, especially on one side, which is the way this usually starts, if you're going to have a tremor. Um, Any kind of loss of facial expression, uh, shuffling gait, hunched posture, you know, can be mild because it's slow and people start to just don't realize that it's happening because it's so gradually progressive. Um, those are red flags uh, that at least should be evaluated by a neurologist, preferably a movement disorders neurologist if there's one in the neighborhood. But um, I think that's the key to success is early detection, micromanagement, and getting our patients to exercise, which uh, has been shown to be the one of the best neuroprotective therapies that uh, we have. I want to ask you this question. I, I believe many people, you know, see this and say this is an older person's disease. And I would just like to get your perspective on that. Uh, absolutely not. Uh, yes, most commonly uh, onset begins in the 60s. And then uh, the the risk goes up for every decade. But uh, 10% of patients with Parkinson's have it begin in the so-called young onset category, which is, you know, technically between 21 and 40, 
you know, we can extend that 20. Uh, and our youngest patient was 21. Uh, and uh, we've seen people even younger on a, for second opinions. So it is not just a young, uh, an older person's disease. And the tendency is to look the other way and say, well, this can't happen. I must be wrong. The doctors you know, just won't accept the fact that this could be happening in a young mm-hmm. person. But it, uh, Michael J. Fox is a perfect example. Yeah. That it can yeah. Well, uh, thank you for today. What is the best way folks can find out more about Parkinson's, about you and about the progress that, that you know, you all are making? What is the best place for them to go? Sure. I'll, I'll give you my uh, our website, which is uh, www.nm, which is Northwestern Medicine, .org forward slash Parkinson's. And um, you can also go to Parkinson Progress. Dot org, and then the national organizations like American Parkinson's Disease Association or the National Parkinson's Foundation. Michael J. Fox has a good website. So there's a lot of uh, good areas uh, where you can get reliable information. Thank you so much for today. And for those of you out there, you can also go to the drpatshow.com or transformationtalkradio.com as we will be making sure that this conversation is available to all of you. Uh, One last question. What's your personal message? What would you like to leave us with today? Um, I think uh, the message is uh, Parkinson's disease is not what it used to be. Patients can do well for decades with the proper management of their disease with medications. Uh, Sometimes we use deep brain stimulation, but it is not a disease that should cause you to end up in a wheelchair in five years. It just doesn't happen anymore. And uh, find an expert in this area to be your doctor. I think that's the way to go. Thank you so very much, everyone. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Talk Radio to Thrive By. I am so thrilled to be talking to all of you. We have got Talk Radio for all of us. Are you ready and willing and able to accept all of the abundance you can muster up in your life? Check us out at drpatcho.com, transformationtalkradio.com, transformationradio.fm. Oh my goodness. Take us with you on that morning commute. Download your favorite podcast from the Transformation Radio Network. Just visit transformationradio.fm. Transformation Talk Radio is dedicated to the education and awareness of Lyme disease. Welcome to Lyme Talk Radio. I'm Dr. Pat Basile, the host of the Dr. Pat Show, and I am so thrilled that we've created this venue for all of you out there. Dr. Pat Basile will be bringing the most innovative, groundbreaking information, research, treatment innovations, and stories from those it affects every day. What we have heard is that you want to ensure for us that we keep positive, holistic, uplifting, transformative talk radio on the air. We're excited to bring you the contemporary conversations about Lyme disease. We promise not to let the light fade on Lyme. So fasten your seat belts. We've got lots more to share with you in the weeks to come. Tune into Lyme Talk Radio with Dr. Pat and help keep our mission strong on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Miss any shows during the week? Don't worry, we've got you covered. With the free Transformation Talk radio app, you'll have access to all of the past week's shows in the palm of your hand. Tune in to Transformation Talk Radio anywhere you go with our free app for any of your devices. Check out our app in the App Store and Google Play Store today. 
Hey everyone, welcome to the Dr. Pacho and Transformation Talk Radio. Today, I'm so thrilled to be speaking with Dr. Babak Jaromi, who completed medical training and neurosurgical residency at the University of Toronto. Today's show is especially important as we are talking about stroke. Stroke, the fifth leading cause of death for Americans. Now, Dr. Jerome has been someone that has been in the forefront of what it means to understand what strokes are and what we can talk about and, and what we can educate ourselves about. You know, having been involved uh, in Northwestern University and been part of a team of people that have been in the leading edge of what we know about strokes, what we can do about them, as well as how to prevent them. Today's show is a short segment about what you should know about the signs and symptoms of a stroke, are there different types, and bringing this amazing doctor to the forefront to share with you his findings, his research, and his powerful message. I am so thrilled to be educating all of us about what it means for each and every one of us as Americans to understand the impact of having a stroke. And if it's not us directly, how about our loved ones? Stroke is the fifth leading cause of death for Americans. And as I introduced uh, Dr. Babek Jeromi, I wanna say that he is leading the way to educate and inform us. But most importantly, he is someone that has dedicated his life to saving lives. Dr. Jerome, thank you for joining me here today. I think most of us are still in shock about how little we know about this. Uh, I mean, what do we have to do to get ourselves more aware? Well, the difficulty is uh, historically, uh, stroke patients uh, were in nursing homes and put away and it wasn't a visible disease. Mm. And we've had the misconception that it's a rare disease and just that of the elderly and it couldn't be farther from the truth. Stroke is a very common problem. We all now see it. Uh, 800,000 Americans every year have a stroke. 130,000 die of a stroke every year. So I think increasingly it's touching, as you mentioned, uh, either our friends, families, and even ourselves. Uh, and it's affecting younger patients. A third of stroke happens in patients younger than 65 before we retire. So, you know, that could be you and me. That could be our colleague across the table at work. Yeah. And I think this is really sort of the conversation that, you know, folks are so wanting to know more about because, you know, once it happens, then it's like, what do we do? And I know this because I have a very dear friend that this happened to. And certainly the new level of awareness, whether we want to believe it or not, is coming through our pop culture in, you know, television shows like the one on Netflix, you know, with uh, uh, Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin, where one of the characters actually does have a stroke, but not in the way we think. You know, can we do more to educate ourselves? I know this is something you're doing. You know, how often do people actually have a stroke? I mean, you know, what are some of the statistics? What has your research found? Well, we know that in the United States, in every 40 seconds, there's a new stroke that's occurring. So wow. uh, the prevalence is sky high. It's the number five cause of death, the number one preventable cause of disability. Uh, nevertheless, we can identify some common identifying signs. Uh, okay. Uh, the uh, stroke associations have done a great job of publicizing this acronym, and the AHA's really led it. Uh, the acronym is FAST. You gotta recognize things fast, think fast, and act fast. And FAST stands for face, facial droop. A is for arm, arm weakness. S is for speech difficulty, and T is time to call 911. So if you ever see 
your loved ones, your friend, or family member, even yourself, having a facial droop or difficulty lifting one arm versus the other, you can't hold that coffee cup up, or not being able to talk or slurred speech or not understanding what other folks are saying, that's when you've got to pick up the phone and call 911. Yeah. How how uh, early do these signs show up? And the question that I'm asking is because, you know, we often see, especially in our pop culture, um, uh, how this might happen to a loved one. But for example, can you start to show signs of this a week before a stroke actually happens? Or is it more close in proximity to the the actual obvious event? You've actually identified a key issue in that uh, almost 20% of strokes have had the exact type of warning sign you mentioned. Mm-hmm. A, uh, a mini stroke, so to speak, a, a TIA, a transient yeah. ischemic yeah. attack, where briefly a blood vessel is plugged, supplying the brain, and so we get the symptoms of stroke, but then the body somehow clears it, overcomes that blockage, and so the symptoms go away, and unfortunately, a lot of patients brush that off. But that key warning sign of another bigger stroke down the road is what really should help us go to the doctor, go to the hospital, because preventing a stroke is a lot easier than fixing it. Yeah. What are some of the, what do I want to say, misbeliefs, uh, myths, misconceptions? What is it that the general population thinks about strokes that may or may not be correct? (laughs) Well, one, you know, we think that stroke is rare, and it certainly isn't. It's common. We think it's a disease just for old folks, and it's not. Uh, The other thing that uh, my patients mention is, well, it's all in the genes, and what can I do about it? And uh, in some aspect, they're right, but in some aspect, that's not correct. So we can't change our age or our family history, and yes, if... uh, your parent had a stroke, then your risk of stroke is threefold higher. But in the end, almost 80% of strokes are preventable. And so there's things our listeners can do right now to dramatically improve their odds. The biggest improvement comes from controlling blood pressure. The other one would be quitting smoking. Next would be treating diabetes and high cholesterol, weight loss, having a good diet, you know, physical activity. These are things every one of our listeners can partner with their primary care physician and reduce their own individual risk of stroke by 80%. So in this sense, it's really in our hands to help ourselves. Yeah. I mean, you pointed out something that's a serious concern for so many, and that's the level of obesity we're now seeing in this country, um, which I think is actually underreported at so many levels. But what you're talking about is a lifestyle change that many people really don't consider because they don't see the sense of urgency. And based on the statistics you just shared, I'm thinking this is a little sense of urgency here. You know, it is a big deal, and and simple things really make a big difference. Uh, Let's say uh, one of our listeners quits smoking. The risk of stroke goes down by two to four-fold in about 10 years. They're back as if they never smoked. Let's say they start exercising. The risk of stroke goes down by 35%. So we can really, by simple actions, uh, cut down that risk. Yeah, and you pointed out something that, you know, in the field that I'm in that I work with quite a bit, and that's the belief that, yeah, I'm too old to quit smoking. It's not going to make a difference. I'm too old to change my diet. It's not going to make a difference. I think you're basically saying, nah, no such thing. Do it now, right? (laughs) No, there's no such thing. You can always improve. Yeah. You know what what let's talk about the advancements here. I know you're involved especially at Northwestern Memorial. You know, there are now innovative leading edge advancements for the treatment. And I think that's the thing we don't talk about enough. It's like once you have a stroke, that's it. You're in trouble. But there have been advancements. Can you share what some of that what some of those are? There certainly have been. Uh, 
for the past two decades, if our patients got to the hospital in time, we can provide intravenous clot-busting drugs that can open the artery, restore flow to the brain, and try to reverse stroke. Uh, some of the challenges have been uh, there are contraindications to these medications, and in really big blocks vessels, the clot-busting drugs aren't as effective. But as of 2015, we've had key trials that have come out that have shown efficacy of a whole new way, really a revolution in stroke care, where we can directly take teeny catheters all the way into the brain, find the blocked blood vessel, and directly open them by pulling out that offending blood clot and restoring blood flow to the brain. So this really has revolutionized stroke care. You know, uh, first of all, I, I uh, was uh, introducing you earlier today, and I, I mentioned a, uh, a bit about your research. And, you know, as researchers, you and I, uh, at some level, the question I love to ask and have asked myself what have been some of the surprises that have shown up in your findings? Now, I know you've done close to 200 papers, abstracts, book chapters, uh, but as researchers, every once in a while, we come up with an aha moment, something that shows up in research. What has that been for you? Um, I think probably the most relevant for our audience was the idea that there's a time limit to treatment of stroke. Uh, the reason that's historically been true is in a big stroke, the brain is dying at a rate of 2 million brain cells per minute. Wow. And so the idea was that past maybe four and a half, even six hours, there isn't a lot to do. And in my own practice, in exceptional cases, I've treated patients up to 12 and beyond hours past the stroke with good results, but those have been exceptions. Now, though, uh, Northwestern is one of the leading enrollers in an NIH-sponsored trial to look at extending that time window. And it turns out that in very select patients, we can still treat stroke up to 16 or even 24 hours past it. Uh, so I think once those results come out, uh, we can expand how therapy is available it still, unfortunately, doesn't change the key fact that the sooner you call 911, the better off you are. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you this question because, you know, I, I, I think it's really important for us to look at, you know, how we can better educate ourselves with the 911 call, you know, I'm in the field of psychology, especially when it comes to trauma. And the thing that I hear most often, doctor, is that, wait a minute, my family member did call 911, but the people that are calling 911 don't really know what to say. And so how can we better educate ourselves that when we have that 911 call, there are a few words we need to say to get people to move in a different direction? Uh, that's a very good point, and the magic word to say over the phone is, I think my loved one or I'm having a stroke. That triggers there you all go. the key alarm bells. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the reason I bring this up is because of what you said about the research and the window that's available, because then the people are going to show up and we don't have to second guess or the caretakers don't have to second guess. They step into a form of action. Um, you know, I wanted to ask you, I know there's lots more we can talk about. Um, what is the best way for our listeners to find out more information here? Because this uh, is important. Yeah, uh, I would encourage our listeners to uh, visit our website at stroke.nm.org. Again, that's stroke.nm, Northwestern Medicine, .org, where uh, they can find a wealth of information on stroke prevention, treatment, recovery, and uh, also uh, be introduced to some of our leading physicians who are advancing the field of stroke care. Um, I know we have a few minutes left, and I want to thank you for your time and thank you for your commitment um, to getting the word out. I want to ask you this question. Um, how do we talk to the families that have a loved one that have had a stroke? What can we say to them? Uh, I think we have to be very sensitive that stroke is a life-changing event. 
Uh, and we have to be able to explain this, but at the same time not take away hope. Uh, I have had my own patients, even years out, continue to show recovery through perseverance. It's a little harder and slower as time passes, but we can't take away hope from our patients. At the same time, we've got to make sure that the gravity of the situation and the resources required for recovery are brought upon. And lastly, we want to make sure that we've learned why the stroke happened and we want to do our best to prevent the next one. Just because we've survived one stroke doesn't mean lightning doesn't strike twice. If anything, a lot of stroke patients have a mm -hmm. prior history of stroke. So I think it's very important to provide information in a gentle and thoughtful manner and then try to help our patients recover as best as they can without having stroke recurrence. Um, one last question. What's your vision? What do you see the future? What are some of the exciting breakthroughs that perhaps are not quite here yet, but you know that you're working on? Uh, I think in the future, uh, that may be quite some time down the road, but we have to overcome a key barrier in recovery in the brain, and that the brain is an organ system that does not divide. So when the brain cells die, there's no replenishment of them. Uh, we and others are beginning to start a trial for stem cell therapy and stroke recovery. So I think the biggest window won't necessarily be upfront stroke treatment, but it's now going to be how do we help our survivors regain function. Uh, we're also partnering with uh, the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. Uh, this is one of the most foremost we have institutes in the U.S. Uh, and how can we partner after the stroke has occurred to now improve the rehabilitation, the function, be it stem cell therapy, be it exoskeletons, be it the holy grail of all, which is the interface between uh, humans and machines. Can we restore function to an injured brain? I know that'll happen, and I'm sure it's down the corner, but it'll take a lot of hard work to get there. And you know, you are the perfect person to lead the charge. Thank you for today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to take a short break, everyone. We'll be right back. Listen while you work. Streaming live on any device. Tune in to the Transformation Radio Network. Visit transformationradio.fm. Did you know that all of the shows on the Transformation Radio Network are available as podcasts to stream or download? Really? Check us out. Go to transformationradio.fm. We have business shows, spiritual shows, energy healing shows, and pretty much everything in between. Something for everyone guaranteed to inspire, educate, and transform. We are transforming the world one listener at a time. Are you traveling most of your day? Do you want to take Transformation Talk Radio with you anywhere you go? Well, guess what? There's an app for that. Just go to the App Store on your Apple device or the Google Play Store on your Android and search Transformation Talk Radio. Catch all of our live shows no matter where you are. Thanks for listening. Wow. Hey, everyone. Welcome. Uh, welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. This is Talk Radio to Thrive By. I'm telling you, I got to pinch myself some days because when each of us gets called to do something that we so not thought was in our wheelhouse to do for a purpose that's so much greater than us, we get to show up and shine. If you would like to show up and shine on the Dr. Pat Show as a co-host or sponsor, send us an email to inspire at the drpatshow.com. Imagine a world where good news, oh, yeah! positive information and stories were the mainstream. Tell us your positive story. Hashtag positivity rules. You are listening to the Transformation Radio Network.
Welcome, everyone. I've been telling you about this upcoming interview, what you're about to hear now. I am so thrilled and excited, actually, to introduce all of you to Dr. David Atkins. Why? Because what he does, what he's talking about is so critically important for many of us that have veterans in our family, for many of us that know people that have served in our country. Today, we're talking about improving healthcare for veterans. Uh, Dr. Atkins, thank you so very much for joining us here today and for your passion and purpose. Pat, uh, I'm delighted to be with you and to take some time to tell your listeners about VA research. You know, I don't think many people even know that VA research exists. That's why I think this is such an important conversation. Um, can you give us a little background, especially for people that are not familiar with this particular role in VA research? Sure. Um, yeah, I think, unfortunately, you're right that a lot of people, um, even people who might be benefiting right now from our research uh, aren't aware about how much research goes on in, in the VA. Um, our research program goes back to uh, the period after World War I, um, but it really uh, took off in the period after World War II when the VA began to build new hospitals and build uh, partnerships with uh, leading universities and uh, had an exp explicit role in bringing in clinicians to do research uh, as, as well as take care of uh, veterans. Um, and so now we've grown to a program that involves over 80 of our leading uh, VA medical centers. Uh, many of those are uh, strongly partnered with uh, the top universities in our country. Uh, and we do research in partnership with um, other big federal funders like uh, the National Institutes of mm -hmm. Health, uh, the Department of Defense. Um, the other thing that people should know is our research runs the whole length from uh, studying things down to the level of the cell and the gene, um, all the way up to studying the healthcare system and how we can make care easier to get. Yeah. The, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, so, I'm really, I'm really, uh, you know, I, I, I think timing is everything in a lot of situations. And I, I was really struck by the, our conversation today, you know, because healthcare is prominent right now in, in the news. Um, but this is something very specifically, it's, you know, it's a type of research and, you know, it's, it, it really is targeted at creating better solutions. Can you tell us about that? At least that's my view of it. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the evolution of this? Yeah, we are the only uh, research program in the world that's focused on the specific needs of veterans. But uh, as you uh, note, in trying to help veterans, we often end up helping uh, all patients. So we are specifically focused on the uh, unique needs of veterans um, from whenever uh, they served. Uh, and obviously veterans are at different parts of their um, life, depending on whether they were in the Korean War, Vietnam War, Gulf War, or uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but we recognize that there are uh, special problems that we need to come up with better treatments for uh, new solutions. Um, from our most recent veterans, those include figuring out how to um, come up with better treatments for traumatic brain injury. Mm. Uh, we're learning a lot about how the brain is affected by being close to a blast, such as when a roadside bomb goes off. Um, and we're trying to f come up with better treatments for veterans, some of whom may suffer headaches for a, a long time or, or, or other problems. Um, we're also a leader in research on post-traumatic stress disorder. 
you know, that really kind of came to attention after the Vietnam War, even though looking back on it, we've known that there are these uh, uh, mental health effects of combat that go back all the way to Greek <laughs> Greek history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they wrote about that with Achilles uh, uh, in the uh, Trojan War. Um, but um, we're learning about new treatments for PTSD, whether that's um, through types of psychotherapy or whether uh, it's uh, attempts to come up with better medication to manage some of the effects of um, PTSD. Uh, we're also studying ways to deliver that care better. So for many veterans um, who live in rural areas, uh, coming in for psychotherapy you know, on a weekly basis is a real burden. We've discovered you can do that just as effectively over the computer uh, using a video link. Uh, and we find that a lot of our veterans like it better and they actually, they're more likely to, they're less likely to miss appointments when we provide that option. You know, so those are I, just examples of things that, uh, mm -hmm. that not only are helping veterans, but are actually helping other healthcare systems figure out how to deal with these problems. I was just going to say that because, you know, there is nothing more complex, I, I, I don't think, when we look at the journey of an individual that serves. Uh, and we and now we're talking both men and women and we're looking at, you know, what is their life like? What is their journey like? What happens? Everything from the physical nature of it to the mental nature of it. And, you know, I, I think we really are on, you know, sort of the tip of the iceberg at fully understanding it. So the fact that you have an organization and you're representing an organization that really wants to go underneath the iceberg, I think it's one of the most important things that we could be looking at right now. Thanks. Uh, well, we certainly agree. And uh, the good news is that uh, Congress, who uh, provides the funds uh, for a specific uh, veteran research program, agrees that um, the way that way forward is through investing and in understanding better uh, cures, uh, better treatments. Um, it's obviously a sort of challenging time in Washington now, but I think um, the people who fund research understand it's an investment that pays off you know, many times over in the long haul. Yeah. I mean, this is really, if you're not going to show up and speak out about it like you are, if we can't have these conversations and bring it to the forefront, we don't even stand a chance. And, you know, I can't say enough about what you're doing and why it's so important. What, what From your perspective, what is the greatest challenge you're seeing? What, what, what are you seeing? I mean, clearly you're doing research, but it doesn't mean that you're not on the forefront of what, what folks are experiencing, right, Dr. Atkins? Yeah, well, I mean, I think um, because we care for such a variety of veterans, there is no one um, single challenge. I think that we, uh, particular areas that we focus on, um, because they are, um, if not unique to veterans, they are certainly prominent in veterans, are um, things like uh, traumatic brain injury, mm -hmm. uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, where the secretary has made combating veteran suicide one of his top five priorities, and, and your listeners will all have, you know, read news stories about the tragedy of uh, veterans who, you know, survive combat only to come home and, and take their own life. Um, people may not realize that actually most veteran suicides are not in the most recent veterans, but they're in veterans who have gotten older, maybe isolated and lonely. Yeah. Um, so uh, we we also are uh, very interested in, even though it's not as big a population, uh, in solving the problems or coming up with better treatments for spinal cord injury oh, yeah. and better prostheses. Uh, Congress has asked us to do research to come up with better prostheses for women because they know that, you know, creating an artificial limb that works for, you know, a Marine who's yeah. 200 pounds and, and six feet tall isn't really going to help a 100-pound 
five foot four woman veteran. Right. Um, right. So, um, but the other uh, point is we we take care of six million veterans uh, a year, and the problems that are common in them are problems in that same problems that uh, non-veterans have: diabetes, heart disease, cancer. Uh, VA has done some of the leading work in prostate cancer, uh, trying to figure out which prostate cancers need to be treated, um, coming up with better better treatments for them. I think some of the areas we're, we're especially excited about is the whole um, future of genomic medicine, um, trying to figure out how your genetic makeup influences your health and maybe influences what treatment works for you. And so we, over the last several years, have set up what's now the world's largest um, database of uh, patients who have uh, volunteered to donate a genetic sample, a blood sample, um, fill out a questionnaire about their health habits, and then provide us access to their uh, health records, their, their medical records so that we can study um, how these things affect health. So we have over 500,000 veterans that have already volunteered to um, be part of this, and we're working on our way to signing up a million in the Million Veterans Program. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I know this is a short conversation for a very, very big topic, but, you know, you all and the work that you do, you said it earlier in the in the conversation is, you know, you are looking at a body of well-being for people that other organizations probably don't have the funds to do or don't have the sense of urgency. The whole idea of looking at providing people with whole lives, even if we're looking at, you know, things like spinal cord injury and so forth, you know, you are really out there and in the forefront. And thank you for taking the message out. And I have one last question. What's your personal mm -hmm. message? What would you like to leave us with today? Well, I think the most uh, important message is a thank you to all the veterans uh, in your community and throughout the country, uh, not only for their service, but for giving back twice uh, and being part of VA research. We couldn't do anything uh, uh, in our research uh, without them. Uh, you're home to some of our leading research centers in uh, Seattle and Portland. Um, and. Uh, and Boise, and uh, we are um, really just so thankful to the, to the veterans who have um, stepped up to be part of our research and helping uh, find solutions to help their fellow veterans. I love it. Dr. Atkins, everyone, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. <laughs> 